Welcome to Better Intelligence, a new podcast about intelligence and how humans and machines are shaping the future together. In each episode, Assam Abadir, managing partner at Aspire Ventures and CEO of Clio Health, speaks with people transforming areas like artificial intelligence and healthcare through technology. Today, Better Intelligence interviews Victor Awar. Victor is a polymath with two bachelor's degrees and two master's degrees in electrical engineering and aeroastro, all from MIT. That's right, Victor is an actual rocket scientist. However, it doesn't stop there. He also has a JD from Harvard Law School and has worked in product development and technology for more than 15 years. He was instrumental in the acquisition of Stellant by Oracle for $440 million and stayed on after the acquisition as Senior Director for Strategy and Product Management, overseeing many exciting products in the tech space. Victor now works at Clio Health, where he oversees product design and technology for some of the most advanced AI-driven healthcare applications in the industry. Welcome, Victor. Thank you. So uh, Victor and I go way back to our days in college in the early 90s. I was a freshman at MIT when Victor was a senior, and he was one of my first roommates there. Uh, probably embarrassed Victor. He doesn't blush easily. You can't see him, but uh, he was definitely one of the guys that everybody uh, our year at MIT knew to go to, to to get the really hard questions answered. So it's a it's a real joy to have Victor here to explain some of the hardest things in uh, mathematics and uh, philosophy right now. So. Thank you for that. Yep. <laughs> Thank you. So, Victor, uh, you know, there's a big debate going on right now about uh, the singularity. So, just for the audience's benefit, the singularity is the notion that computers are going to get smarter than human beings, and then, you know, the days of the Terminator are going to be upon us. We're, you know, we're going to be hunted down and you know, made extinct or, or something along those lines. Uh, is that something you're worried about, Victor? No, not particularly, no. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there, see, now we can end the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah. why aren't you worried about that? Well, I think it's, it's a situation is more complex than it seems at first blush. So uh, to start with, when we say computers are getting more intelligent than humans, what is a human? You know, am I the limit of the intelligence I was born with or that biologically exists within me? Or does my intelligence extend to the tools I use every day in my daily life? For example, you know, I'm, I could argue that I'm intelligent enough to give you the best path from any one point on earth to any other point on earth. Well, how do I do that? I just go to Google. And I, I don't even have to type. I could just ask it, what's the best path from New York to Philadelphia? And uh, Google will give me a path that avoids traffic and avoids all sorts of obstacles on the way. So I, I would argue that that's part of human intelligence. And that is growing, you know, as quickly as what you would call, you know, computer or machine intelligence. So just like, you know, my ancestors would use a plow or, a, or a, a hoe to dig the land instead of digging with their hand. Today, we, we have props and tools that we use to extend our intelligence. And, and those tools 
as they grow, so does our effective intelligence. So how fast are computers getting smarter? How how does that get measured in the tech world? Yeah, that is a good question. You know, first some background. So to many people, a computer is just a convenience. And when we talk about them getting smarter, that seems abstract. So I agree with you. It helps to quantify that, to sort of provide a baseline so people understand what that means. A computer is essentially a bunch of logic blocks. We'll call them gates that make decisions. And those gates comprise of things called transistors. Essentially, the more the transistors or the more the gates the more the computer can do in a unit time. And then, of course, there's the conductor that says, okay, you know, start your jobs now, and your results have to be done by the next clock cycle, and those results are then ready for other computing components to take in the next clock cycle. So that's the clock rate, if you will. We all are familiar from the 80s or the 90s, how many gigahertz or how many megahertz is the computer? That's, that's where that metric comes from at a high level. So the trend has been, since the 70s and maybe even the 60s, that the number of transistors, which measures how much computing power you have on one computing unit, doubles essentially every two years. We, we call that Moore's Law. And, and uh, things that like that that double every year, for example, are expanding uh, exponentially. So if you plotted them in a graph, it looks like a hockey stick. It looks like, you know, it's relatively flat in the beginning and it just appears to get steeper and steeper over time going upwards. And that, that has historically been the trend for computing, which has been great for us. It's uh, perhaps the only example where uh, something of value gets better over time. Computers perform better. They get cheaper and uh, they work better. You know, they are not as hot, so they don't have loud fans. Generally, it's the best of both worlds. And uh, yeah, did that answer the question? Yeah, so uh, so I think that's a big part of the argument, as I understand it, in the singularity or the fear that uh, computers will have the raw processing power. It's based on Moore's law, uh, you know, expanding out forever, uh, or at least until computers become self-aware. Uh, so one of the the first pushbacks, I guess, to Moore's law is, uh, you know, will it continue forever, or you know, into the near future? Uh, maybe you have some insight as to whether you think that will actually continue for a while, and where would we look to see, you know, what kind of technology trends would keep that going? Yeah, you know, that that's a great question. So there are uh, folks that think that that will stop. And I, I think there is some truth to that if you look at the problem narrowly. So if, if you look at how tightly we are packing the transistors today, we're getting to a point where the, the, the width of, of a transistor, of a computing unit, is comparable to the size of an atom. Now, the worry is that if, if, if you get small enough, you can't really have it be smaller than an atom. So there is essentially a hard limit. We can only pack computing so much before we get to the physical limitations that we can't change, that are beyond our power to change. And so that's, that's, that's one limit. And some folks will say, oh, look at that, you know, 2020 or 2030, whatever the, the, the year is, typically before, before 2050, we are going to, to sort of reach the limit 
of how tightly we can pack transistors, which which is also the limit of, of, of how how well we can scale computing. Uh, there are also other things, for example, like you know the state of memory. If if I'm remembering something in the computer, if if the memory becomes smaller than an electron, we've packed memory so tight that the, the space in which we are remembering an item is so small that it can't get smaller, we will sort of reach a limit. And those those are things that, believe it or not, we are getting close to. It's looking like for sure within the next 50 or 70 uh, years, if, 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 if nothing changes about the, the paradigms we are using to store information and to compute, we're going to reach those hard limits. So, uh, so one of those, they, so to recap that, Basically, the the tighter we can pack things uh, down, that you know, soon we start hitting atomic limits, and you know that's that's got to be in sight at some point. That's right. Yes. So then, uh, other paradigms like quantum computing. I re I recall when I was a uh, freshman in college, I came up to you after reading a, an article about quantum computing, all worried that you know the world was you know, in 10 years going to, your computers were going to be smarter than uh, than we were and, uh, you know, the Terminator days would be on us. Uh, why shouldn't we be worried about quantum computing? Uh, you know, is there any indication that new paradigms like quantum computing are, are going to enable that singularity faster or in a different way? Yeah. So I see your question as having two prongs. I think for a start, that it is inevitable that some new paradigm of computing will come that will allow us to sort of break through. I am optimistic that Moore's law will continue. And you may ask me, why is that? I don't see Moore's law as merely capturing what we are doing in, in, in silicon or with, with, with computer chips. I think if we extend human history to the beginning of time, you know, first by being able to count our fingers as we counted, and then moving on to the abacus, moving on to analog computers. I believe, based, you could say, on religion, if you will, that if we plotted all of that, human computing has always increased exponentially. How we do that changes, you know. It may be that today the way we achieve that exponential growth isn't by having a better abacus. It's by uh, building a computer. And so I am optimistic that this hurdle is just, it's just a step, you know, progress may not be smooth, but if we, if we plotted the graph and joined it, you would see the same exponential growth, I believe, through those atomic limits. Do I know how we'll achieve that? I, I don't. But uh, to the skeptics, I say, you know, look to Malthus. I don't know if you're familiar with Malthus or something. Mm -hmm. Yep. But Malthus is this cleric from the 18th century, and he had this theory that, that uh, in his day people thought was brilliant. He said, look. Uh, human population is growing exponentially. You know, everybody has four kids and those four kids have four kids and that's exploding. If you plot that in a graph, it looks like that, that hockey stick that, that I described before. But to his eyes at the time, it looked like agricultural production was only growing linearly. You know, we, we can only farm so much and we can only squeeze so much from the land. So at his time, there was this theory that there'll be a Malthusian catastrophe at the point where population grew and outpaced uh, the growth of, of agricultural production. 
And uh, we know today that that didn't happen. Why didn't it happen? Because humans innovate. You know, between the time when that catastrophe would have occurred and when Malthus lived, we had uh, mechanized farming, which exploded agricultural production. And uh, if you look at that on a graph, it starts to look more, more, uh, more exponential than linear. If you look at production from farms, and it happens all the time, we go, well, we're about to hit the limit. We won't be able to produce more food. And every time we get close to that, you see more production. I, I don't see a difference with computing. I, I believe that uh, we'll break through the, the, the limit, the atomic limit either by coming up with new paradigms of, of computing. You mentioned some, some like uh, quantum computing, you know, interconnecting optically between computing units and, and all sorts of things like that. And, and uh, we'll continue to see the exponential growth. Uh, just because I think it's a cool technical area, could you explain how quantum computing would change the equation and kind of get us past the atomic limits of density? Yeah, quantum computing. So today, when we build computing devices, they're essentially physical. There are a bunch of atoms that define the gate. With quantum computing, the, the state of, of, of computing, essentially the memory becomes the quantum state of an electron. It's almost as if we can now store multiple pieces of information within one atom, breaking through that physical limit. So that's that's the simplest I can come up with that, that analogizes that in a way that that uh, that one can grasp without studying physics. Yeah. And uh, yeah, this isn't strictly technically correct, but you know I think it's it's at least fair to say you know if you're hitting an atomic limit, then subatomic. Uh, things that you can do actually change the uh, the paradigm for you. Um, so without getting into multiple states and and what have you, I, I, I think it's good for the audience to know there are there are other ways around just hitting that that atomic density issue. Uh, so you know if I recall correctly, one of the other things that impacted uh, the Malthusian assumption was, there, uh, the population actually hit an asymptotic limit. It, it didn't uh, expand forever. I know you're making the uh, the argument that computing power, you know, and Moore's law will extend for for quite a while. But uh, maybe you could explain the other side of the equation: things that happen in in nature where they they do tend to level out. Yeah. I think you you could almost say that that everything does eventually level out. You know, it'd be it, it's hard to come up with things that just exploded and continue to get bigger, perhaps except for the universe. You know, from the Big Bang. You know, that's probably the closest example. And even that, we are starting to understand that that that'll shrink eventually. You know, it doesn't expand continually. It, it, it sort of seems counter to nature that things will will continue to grow. But you know. I feel that un until we see otherwise, that that's the logical assumption. You know, the evidence sort of supports that viewpoint. So, you know, if I were graphing out, and I, I like this technique from Enrico Fermi, you know, Fermi estimation. The, the background on Fermi estimation is that there's a very famous physicist, uh, Enrico Fermi, uh, who is also known to be a wonderful professor. And he would in his first class meeting often ask his students to estimate the number of piano tuners in New York City. 
And you might ask yourself what that has to do with physics or anything else. But this kind of commonsensical way of breaking down a problem and looking at it in its components really helped his students and him uh, you know, come up with breakthroughs in the field. So, you know, if we could break down this this discussion into its components, you know, on one side we have Moore's law uh, advocating for ever expanding computing power, uh, and on the other side we have this uh, trend in nature that things eventually level out for the most part. And I wonder where would we see that, you know, re, you know those two factors start to match up. So, uh, you know, if we look at the brains of mammals, we don't actually have the biggest brains. Uh, I think sperm whales have the largest and elephants have, you know, much larger brains than ours. Do you have any thoughts on why... Uh, they're not smarter than us. Why aren't sperm whales, you know, ruling the world right now? Yeah, yeah. and, and uh, this is a, a good question. You know, I, I, sperm whales is a good example. The one I like most is, is uh, men and women, you know, typically because men are larger. Men do have larger brains, but we all know, anyone that's married knows that women are much smarter than we are. <laughs> no doubt about that. Yeah. And, and uh, it's a good question. I really think uh, the answer goes to, to what intelligence means. You know, there are various things that, that come into play. Is it just the number of computing units? You know, if, if I had a room full of uh, 386 computers, say, from 1970, that weren't connected to each other and each were working separately, would that be as smart as the same computing power on a device that's well-organized and arranged to solve a problem? The answer is obviously no. So, you know, to answer your question, just having more computing power in the brain of an elephant without it being architected in a way that, that, that allows it to solve particular problems well may mean that it's it's not good for anything beyond moving a 3,000 pound body, you know, that, that sort of thing. So, yeah, I, I think it, it's very nuanced and complex what it means to be intelligent. So, some things that, that come to mind are, you know, look at the minds of humans, for example. Our brains today are supposedly smaller than the brains of Neanderthal man, you know, who came before us. Yet we all know that we have better language. You know, we are in many ways much smarter than they are. I think the difference lies in, in how their brain was used and how it was organized. So their brain was structured to, to for visual, you know, to see at night and that sort of thing, and also to control their, their muscular systems better. And yet uh, we, with our smaller brain, have sort of evolved and, and, and directed our minds, which are highly programmable, to, to solving more abstract problems that allow us to do more things we consider intelligence. So, so do you yeah. think there's a chance that human beings are architected optimally to be as intelligent as the computing power allows for? I, I, uh, are we the smartest that smart can be? Uh, I think we have. Th that question is, is loaded. So, and, and, and here's why the question makes me uneasy. If we took the smartest human being, from birth and locked him in a white room 
with no exposure or stimulation, they wouldn't be very smart after 40 years. So yes, I, I think human beings have evolved to have a mind that is highly programmable and is optimized to become as smart as it needs to be, essentially. So I, I would say yes, with the caveat that, of course, subject to the right stimulation, subject to exposure to the right tools, and, and the different things that allow the human mind to achieve its potential, the human mind, I think, is is as good as we've seen. You know. So, you know, expanding on that last point that you made, if you uh, took a human being and put them in a white room for for 50 years, they wouldn't be very smart at the end. Uh, there is an effect out there uh, known as the Flynn effect, which shows that over uh, the years, human beings taking IQ tests, uh, you know, a, a human being taking the same IQ test that was given 50 years ago gets a lot more questions right uh, and far faster. And the supposition, it's from, Flynn is a, a well-known uh, psychologist and um, researcher in the intelligence area. But you know, James Flynn basically posited that this was as a result of an ever-increasingly complex environment. Uh, how does that relate to training computers to solve problems? How do, how do computers go about you know, getting trained, you know, from an algorithmic standpoint. Yeah. So I, I would say that, uh, that very, depending on the, the kind of computer, they're exactly analogous. So in my mind, the strength of the human mind is that a baby born, not knowing language, for example, will learn about, will learn language without access to a dictionary because a dictionary depends on language, right? So this highly programmable uh, engine that is the human mind self-trains and becomes powerful over time by itself. And I, I think if you look at some of, especially in the areas of focus today in computing, we see a lot of things that look like that. So machine learning, for example, tries to mirror that. And I think their goal, you know, the holy grail is to achieve the same sorts of things. You know, I don't know which ad will appeal to folks in, in rural Florida that are looking for a vacation. And, and uh, I want to train, a, I want to build a computer that will self-train and learn about which ads make sense for them and, and get to a point where it optimally targets them with ads. These are, are real problems that we solve today with computers, and they, they are beginning to look more and more like the human mind. So I don't think the world in general realizes just how far, uh, you know, how primitive neural networks are uh, today in computers versus neural networks in the brain. So, uh, Victor, maybe you could give some background on the disparity between current computational neural networks and... Yeah. So, uh, neural networks typically have nodes, the computing nodes, that are uh, the nonlinear components that, that are used in, 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 in doing the magic, if you will, where the secret sauce lies. And uh, the disparity in size between the, the, the number of neural nodes in the human brain and anything we've built as humans is staggering. 
So you have a neuron with synapses connecting it to other neurons. The, the neuron, and when it figures out whether to fire or not, sort of has this sigmoidal shape. Uh, and that, that's, if you think of that as a node, as a computing element in the neural network, we, we build similar things when we build a neural network in a computer. And uh, the, the number of them sort of captures the complexity of the problem that, that it can solve or model. And uh, as I was saying, uh, in a human brain, we are talking of tens or hundreds of millions of such nodes in, 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 in one brain. But computers typically, we know, will will max out at hundreds, thousands, maybe. So you're you're talking orders of magnitude of difference, and that controls the the kinds of problems you can solve with one with one as opposed to the other. And uh, the other difference is uh, many of our neural networks sort of have a predictive forward loop where they solve a problem. And then there is someone else that intervenes to determine the error in their solution. And then they have what we call a backward propagation, where we correct the neural nodes based on the errors. This this backward cycle is something that, that uh, human minds don't appear to need. So if you think about the child learning a new language, uh, there is no one that tells it, no, that was an apple, not an orange. You know, Now go back and correct your 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 your, your, your the settings on your nodes so that you, you you answer that problem more correctly. You know, it's the, the human mind seems to have these forward-only neural networks that still can learn and, and solve complex problems. And that's something that we don't do as well as the human mind today. Got it. So uh, I think one of my favorite examples of this is uh, pigeons, actually. So pigeons have relatively simple brains. And it turns out that uh, pigeons can be taught to read uh, X-rays or uh, MRIs, basically, you know, things like brain cancer, as well as the leading oncologist. You just have to show them enough, uh, you know, pictures and feed them in the in the right way. Uh, but wow, that's amazing. Yeah, (laughs) it really is, right? So the question is, are pigeons smarter than oncologists? Yep. (laughs) Right? And, uh, you know, I think maybe what you're talking about there explains the difference. So uh, even if pigeons had bigger brains, you know, what, what stops them from being oncologists? Yeah, and and uh, this is why intelligence is confusing, right? So uh, 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 they're good at solving that problem, but can they solve every problem? The the example that I always like to give is I watched this show, and this guy was so brilliant. You know, he could open a book, read every page in parallel, and finish a two hundred page book in forty in forty in three minutes, I think. And you could read a word and he would tell you what page the word in. So he sounds like he's completely brilliant, but he can't lace up his shoes. So it almost seems like, you know, oftentimes you have strength in one area at the expense of another. Just because the pigeon can read the MRI, it doesn't mean the pigeon will come up with the best cure for solving what ails that patient, which the the you know, the neurosurgeon probably can't, can do much better than the pigeon, right? So intelligence is really the complete set. It's more complex than solving any one problem well. 
So I, I really like this notion that you brought up of programmability, right? You know, if I have a lot of computing power, how programmable, I guess, is it to solve different problems? And, you know, going back to that discussion of the Flynn effect, uh, thinking that programmability is, uh, you know, that improvements in intelligence are tied maybe to programmability. That's why human beings are you know, answering more questions on the same IQ tests now than they did before. Uh, so if the correlation is about complexity of environment, how complex is our environment, uh, you know, getting what you have kids, right? <laughs> um, I, you know, what do you see with your kids? You know, do you, do you, do you ever think about, uh, whether it's a good thing that they're watching YouTube or, you know, a bad thing, are they more intelligent than you expected them to be? I, I would say that they are. And, and uh, I see it a little bit differently. So the Flynn effect for intelligence, I see that as being, yes, we are getting more intelligent at the sorts of questions that are examining the IQ test. But I bet you, you know, if, if, if you and if, if we and someone from, say, I don't know, the 30s were both abandoned in the woods and told, you know, feed yourself for a week, I'm not sure that we would do better than them. In other words, back to your programmability, our minds are better programmed to, to do the things we consider intelligence today than the minds of folks 20 or 30 years ago were. And to that point, I think our kids are far more intelligent than we are. So my son, for example, and I'm sure your son is, started playing with, with flight simulators, you know, when they were two or three. And that means they have quicker reflexes, you know, they, they visualize things better, they have better spatial perception, sense of depth and all of that. And uh, they have access to a lot more information. You know, you could have conversations about cancer and illness with a four or five-year-old because they, they, they have access to that information in YouTube. They, they, you know, before they can type, they could ask Alexa, questions and, and have conversations and sort of learn things that we, we didn't have access to. It was a world that wasn't open to us. There wasn't even an internet if you wanted to search for it by typing. So I, I think you're right. You know, the, the, the kids today are ex far better exposed and they, they, they stretch their minds in new ways that I think will lead to an increasing of that Flynn effect. Do you, do you have a sense of what kind of problems you know, the, our kids are going to be better at solving than we are. And I guess maybe the types of problems that computers will likely be bad at solving in the near future. Where Where is human advantage likely to lie in the future, do you think? Yeah. And I, I like the question and it'll seem like I'm, I'm ducking it, but I really think that's the answer. I think that, uh, you know, I look at myself growing up, I learned to do computations using logarithmic tables or slide rules. You probably didn't because uh, you grew up in a different country. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, that was the determinant for success when I was growing up. So essentially, we had to become computers. And I think for kids that have grown up with computers, that section of your mind is freed. You know, my son, if you told him about that, he would wonder what 
what you'd been smoking, right? So, <laughs> and that, that avails to him more computing power, more, more exposure to higher level things that I think are more important in the world in the future. So uh, he, for example, is more likely to write a computer program at, at the age of nine than I, I was. It wasn't something I could do, which I think equips him to live in a world where computing is, is more advanced because he, he basically is filling the gap between what computers can do and what we need as opposed to folks like me that had to do both and, and, and wound up not doing either as well as they could. Yeah, I will tell you, it's something I personally struggle with. I also have uh, you know, a couple of kids that are about uh, you know, Victor's kid's age. So you know, one of the things that I struggle with is should I be judging them on the same, uh, you know, by the same metrics that I was judged on as a kid, right? So math tests of, you know, different sorts or grades in school, as opposed to uh, looking at how their current environment, you know, which their current environment is, they've got, you know, cell phones stuck to their hands and they can text faster than I can think. And, you know, they can carry on multiple conversations. And my daughter's learning about how to save, you know, fish from dropsy by examining YouTube videos and all kinds of crazy things, right? Uh, But are they getting smarter because of these things that I have an intrinsic revulsion towards, right? You know, I don't really love it when I walk into the living room and I see my daughter on YouTube. Uh, but should I be changing my mindset around that uh, because she's, you know, getting smarter in a way that I don't really, uh, I can't even predict right now. Do you, do you go through the same thoughts with your kids? I do, and I completely agree with that thinking. I think what what to me is 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 worrying is when the kids are passive. So I think you know if the kids are in YouTube, they're learning, you know, they're finding things, they're doing things that actually expand their potential. That's great. What isn't, I think, is when they sit back and they're watching a show, for example, that that is is you know mundane there's nothing of value in it that i think is negative so yeah in my mind and i'm not i i'm i'm with you it bothers me a lot when i see them glued to a screen but i think so long as it's something that's expanding them it's it's those are the skills they need it's a different world well i think that is a great place to leave off today i thank you so much i think this was a really interesting conversation and uh thank you victor thank you very much Better Intelligence is brought to you by Aspire Ventures, which is improving population health by pairing technologies that use artificial intelligence with some of the best minds in medicine.